0: This week on the Fit for Purpose podcast, I'm interviewing Lord David Blunkett, somebody that I think millions of people around the country will be very familiar with, obviously now a member of the House of Lords, but actually one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, and someone who held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet, and of course, was just down the road from me as I was growing up in Rotherham, serving as the MP for Sheffield Brightside. uh, I think probably it's been an amazing journey that you've had David but I think I wanted to start at the beginning in a way because I think you know I I, I'm obviously younger than you but I grew up tuning in to look north every night as we had our tea and you you were often on it and at the time if someone had told me I'd be following in your footsteps um, I don't think I'd have believed it but you you started on Sheffield City Council, and I think that's when I first really saw you in politics. And you were actually, at the time, the youngest ever councillor. You got elected in 22. Tell me what that was like. I mean, being so young is amazing. But also, obviously, you know, you were somebody who were visually impaired. You were completely breaking new ground, probably, in that, would you say? How did it feel?
1: So i certainly was apologies to uh, viewers for being in a committee room and being overdressed but i'm in westminster and this is the best room for connectivity so to forgive me yeah it was um, it, it was just astonishing to find myself on the council age 22 I was i just started at university as a, a semi-mature student because it took me a long time at evening class to get the qualifications to get into university in the first place and I was a pig-headed, bumptious young man. I had to be to persuade people that if you couldn't see and you were just starting out at university, you should be selected for what was then a safe seat. There aren't many safe seats anywhere anymore. A uh, safe yeah, seat yeah. on the City Council. And they were, they were good enough to take the risk because it was a risk. I, it's not true now. We've just had a, a, a an election uh, and a conservative age 21 has been elected in one seat in Sheffield, the one seat that they hold. Um, In those days, I was the youngest by about 25 years. So it was a bit of uh, a a, a rude awakening for all of us, me included, because I was having to learn as I went along.
0: And how did it work day to day? I mean, you obviously cut your teeth in, I think it's fair to say, you know, that was a volatile period in politics, wasn't it? During your time in, in council, but also as you then ultimately became an MP.
1: Yeah, I think we were in a period of, of change, change as a country, but also uh, in my party moving really, if you like, uh, through a period of, well, we were about to hit a period of massive turmoil where we weren't capable of of dealing with change and we'd lost the, the high ground in terms of uh, intellectual ideas. And there were a group of us, a very small group of us, who were trying to say, there's got to be what Anthony Giddens eventually called the third way, which is that we're not free marketeers. We're not old labor. We want to do things in the community, building a communitarian approach. I found it much harder to do than I found it to, to say. The theory was absolutely fine, but getting people on board was a different matter altogether and because i was um, studying politics at the time i was on the council i was i was having a dual experience the reality of day-to-day decision-making where I was being chopped down, quite rightly, nobody gave me a, an inch uh, in terms of the, the Labour group cut down when I came up with these fancy ideas, and at the same time reading theory and, and, uh, and uh, historical uh, political philosophy. So it was, it was almost schizophrenic, if you like, in terms of what I was doing, but it stood me in very good stead for the future.
0: And I guess it gave you a chance to have a lot of the ideas that ultimately would become very defining in British politics, but at the same time, really see them through the lens of grassroots communities. And, and you know, for me, politics has always been about change on the ground, but, but mm. that's where you were really able to, to see how they would resonate with people.
1: Yes, if you weren't making a difference to people in their everyday lives, then they couldn't see what difference you were about. They couldn't see what your values were about or what purpose you had in being in politics. And we're still all these years on. I mean, it's frightening for me that uh, 50 years on, we're still having the same arguments in my party and we're still having the same discussion in the country and that's why I think building from the bottom is really important people have got to believe that they can do something to improve their own lives it's aspiration but it's also aspiration linked to mutual support so if people know that the support the assistance the opportunity will be there then they've got the obligation I think to, to take it up now not everybody can do that obviously and we need to support those uh, who can't very heavily but the majority of people have got some spark of some kind inside of them and lighting that through the education system from early years onwards is what you and I believe in
0: yeah totally and I think certainly for me um It's just very much driven me this this issue of change happening at the grassroots. And it's what we've been doing on the social mobility work, you know, and trying to get businesses to think differently, but also, you know, the the work that that I think both of us did within education um, was was transformational. So you you cut your teeth in Sheffield City Council. I start seeing you popping up on Look North um, ever more frequently, and you end up becoming MP for Sheffield Brightside in 1987 so you've done a good long stint actually on the council at that stage how hard was it almost to move from what had become very familiar Sheffield City Council kind of territory to then suddenly be going into I mean what was it you know I found quite an alien environment in Westminster when I first turned up
1: yeah, I was a big fish in a small pond going as a very small fish into a big pond. Uh, as they I've I'd, I'd been leader of Sheffield for seven years, so I had learnt a bit about the challenges, both of leadership and of balancing uh, the, the things you want to do with the reality of practicalities around you. And I'd been on Labour's National Executive Committee for four years, which was quite an experience, because we were in the middle of fighting the militant tendency and trying to sort the Labour Party out. When I got into Parliament, I did find it a really strange environment, partly because myself and Ken Livingstone came in from local government and we were both getting up people's noses, is the honest truth. And I had the added uh, adjustment. Sorry,
0: David, why were you getting up? Was it because you you were coming across all these kind of overly intellectualised ideas and able to say, well, actually, in the real world and on the ground, it's something different?
1: I think part of the problem Justin was that we were telling people what we could we've been able to do we were talking about how we've made a difference to people's lives on the ground whether it was controversial or not Uh, and they were saying, well, hang on a minute, we've been out of power for uh, eight years. uh, In in the case of 87, we're in a right mess. Um, You know, you you, you upstarts uh, have no idea what it's like to be in opposition. And to be honest, we hadn't. I mean, opposition, as every party finds out, is excruciatingly difficult, not just because you can't make a difference and change people's lives, but because of the frustrations that go with it. People are saying to you all the time, why can't you do this? why aren't you able to deliver and you're saying i'm sorry i'm the opposition not the government uh, whereas at local level at least you could do something even if the resources were really restricted Uh, and as a consequence we were uh, really irritating i think people i was helped by two circumstances one i I became very ill with viral pneumonia and then i had my gallbladder out and in those days it was a big operation so i I was out of action for several months in the first year i was in and Mm -hmm. paradoxically that helped because i was less visible less challenging than i would have been and neil Kinnock took the decision against the advice of some of his senior colleagues to give me a front bench job on the grounds that I was better inside than out and that if I had to have the discipline of standing at the dispatch box and talking for the opposition I wouldn't be causing so so much problems on the back benches I think that was a very smart decision.
0: So you then end up I mean quite sensibly being made party spokesman for local government um, and you end up as you say becoming a member of the shadow cabinet So it sounds like that early, that early time cutting your teeth in Sheffield very significantly really meant that you were able to hit the ground running. Yes, there were a few storming, norming, performing team things going on, but actually fundamentally you were able to contribute to that labor team very quickly, I think.
1: Yeah, the the higher you climb, the more resource and support you get. It's one of the twists of life. So when I first started out on the council, I undoubtedly abused the support uh, and practical help of my then wife, Ruth, and it did our relationship no good at all. And I swore that in future, I wouldn't put that burden on someone. And of course, when I became leader of the council, and then an MP, albeit that we had massive arguments about the resource that should be available when I came into Parliament, eventually we got it sorted. And with that kind of support, I was able to work on equal terms with people who could see. Now that was really important to me, but it was critically important, I think, for sending a message out for those with all kinds of challenges, not just um, physical disabilities, but all kinds of challenges that you can do things, but you do need the backing and the help to do it and I think that message transcends certainly your politics and mine in the sense that if we understand what help is available and could be deployed then we can challenge people to use their own tenacity and get up and go uh, and, and do something about it so it's two-way switch' it's reciprocity really.
0: I, I couldn't agree more and I still think today that when it comes to you know, physical challenges, disability. That Parliament isn't anywhere near as as mm. diverse as it needs to needs to be. And, and I think, and one of the things I was doing when I was Minister for um, Women and Equalities was looking at, if you like, the the funding and the resourcing available to support candidates. You know, with those more practical challenges to run, to literally have the resourcing they needed to be able to get through an election campaign. Because I just don't think you'll end up with smart decisioning in Westminster if if it remains, if you like, not representative of that that wider country that is actually out there day to day?
1: Well, I served on the Speaker's Commission looking at how we could increase the diversity, and it was quite hard work with the parties. There was goodwill within Westminster to do something very hard to get the parties to understand how critical this is. We had, as you know, a very small fund that was made available, and you played a part in getting that. We had internships, which also gave opportunity for social mobility. Uh, I remember having a young man who was quite profoundly deaf in my own office. It's one of those twists. He couldn't hear and I couldn't see. Um, uh, (laughs) And he was great. And he went on to university from that. And it's really giving people the chance and okay. then saying, you know, we'll put the, the 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 assistance in place to make it possible. Now go for it.
0: And it's never been because of technology, in a sense, a lot of the barriers, you know, are able to be taken away a lot more. And I think you do know you do need those voices um, in Parliament. I think it's vital. But of course, I want they to- set an
1: example, don't they? It's it, people. If people can see that something's possible then they'll aspire to it. It's about providing hope that you, whatever your background, wherever you came from, there is a possibility. I I know this American dream stuff is often quite nonsensical, but in our own context, it is possible from the most deprived backgrounds to do things if you get the opportunity the backing to do it and that really starts with early years which you and i have been very strongly in favor of from sure start to through nursery and then high quality education and the scandal over the last century and I, i'm afraid i didn't do enough about it when i was uh, leader of sheffield and i did my best in the four years i was educated employment secretary as you did is to is to transform that life chance in areas that have, in the past, just been written off, people oh they're terribly deprived they'll never get anywhere, and then when they do get somewhere, we better close down the university opportunity because it's it's watering down the quality. Yeah. You know it's quite dispiriting, isn't it really?
0: Uh, I agree with that, and I think there's a, a distinction that needs to be made politically between, if you like, the academic grades that someone gets which are in part a reflector of the quality of education they've had um, and their underlying potential to reach a level of higher education and to be able to actually do a degree with the right support. And I think we've we've kind of really missed that distinction um, too often. And David, I wanted to ask you about your time in the DfE because, and, and the moment you got the job, you had been shadow education secretary, Tony Blair gets elected, but as we we both know, you don't necessarily know after the election that you're going to stay in the role. Tell me how it felt when you're you you you're told by the new prime minister that you've got the role, and that moment that you walk into that department to meet that staff.
1: I was particularly fortunate, not only because Tony Blair wanted to make education, 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 a, a top priority. I mean, it made a, an enormous difference. Whatever criticisms there are of... Uh, secretaries of state of education they they really can't do what they need to do if the prime minister is not wholly on board you, you know that i know that i was i was really really lucky and he had said to me the year before bar, bar making a complete mess of the run-up to the election he was going to let me have a go at carrying through what we'd put together in opposition so i was really please it it didn't stop me being extraordinarily relieved as well as extremely (laughs) pleased on the day when I went into Downing Street and he said you've got the job now for goodness sake just get on with it Um, and going into the department and Gillian Shepherd, my predecessor, had been very helpful to me. Uh, She'd understood where where the the rooms were and what was happening. So she consulted with me in the six months leading up to the election. I'm not sure you'd ever get this now um, about what needed to be done for changes for university, what needed to be done with the curriculum and the the reports that were coming through. And they, they were going to report after the general election. So she rather wisely thought if she wanted to make a difference, get me on board otherwise all you end up doing so often is trashing what the previous parties just set in train and obviously you want to adapt it and adopt a different direction but actually carrying through things that have already started to things that you agree with make good common sense just renaming and trashing things don't
0: totally agree and I still, as we talked about when we were on that joint seminar a few weeks ago, Mm -hmm. I think there's too much chopping and changing just for the sake of it when there are some great ideas. And I think what was interesting, you know, talking to you before was just how much commonality in practice there was between what, you know, for example, both of us were trying to achieve. And so give us a sense, you know, you talked about some of your priorities for education, but how that kind of fitted in with your wider, you know, sense of social mobility and equality of opportunity, and 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 now you're suddenly in this role where you can actually make an incredible difference.
1: Yeah, and Gillian had written a little book called Shepherd's Watch, and I, it shows how much notice I have taken it, because I can remember the page number. Well, page 153 said, I didn't have any levers to pull, so the first thing I needed to do was to try and ensure we had some levers, not not actually command and control, but we set up a standards and effective machine. We put people out as coordinators into the regions and the big cities. And we said, look, have a go at the literacy and numeracy programs, not because they were the be all and end all, because innovation comes from the bottom up, not just from the top. But we've done a lot of work on it. And we knew that there was a dire situation in primary schools in terms of children's ability to gain the tools that would allow them to learn. If you're going to spark a life, a love of, lifelong learning, you need to be able to read and write and to have some at least grasp of basic maths. So we, we wanted to do that as a starter. We got a bit bogged down in people thinking that the literacy hour or the numeracy hour was, was the thing to do. The thing to do was to change the way in which you taught so that children were inspired to want to learn. Uh, and then to carry that through to secondary, which as you'll have discovered is very much more difficult. I think what's happened with the pandemic has thrown up some really profound questions uh, about how we teach and what we teach to and for uh, and the qualification areas you know this norm referencing about what happened in the past or grade boundaries that say only so many youngsters in a particular cohort can get a particular grade all of that I think is now up for grabs and a good thing too but we'll need a dialogue and we'll need a dialogue that isn't just a party dialogue but a a cross-party debate with the education service and educationalists about what we can do to learn from what's happened and move forward
0: I, I agree and my sense is that it does have to be cross-party because you need to have some stability but fundamentally we probably need to go back to basics and say what is the purpose of education in the first place because I think the reality is that teachers I mean I think teachers are doing much much more than the pure curriculum and academic learning but fundamentally in education policy that's really not that's not what they're actually really being tasked to do. It's certainly not what they're measured on. And it it feels to me like if we could nail down what we're collectively wanting our young people to achieve during those formative years, both academically, but also most socially and emotionally, then we might be able to work out which bits schools deliver and which bits happen, you know, from different actors, whether it's businesses and work experience or, you know, the third sector and mentoring, et cetera.
1: Yes, I think in our emphasis now on technical and vocational education, we, we mustn't get into a, a mindset that, that, that is separate from academic achievement. You, you need basic academic achievement to do the technical vocational well. And people will do it at different levels at different times of their life, which is why lifelong learning is so crucial so that people don't feel that they've been written off by the time they're 18 19 uh, and if you if you fundamentally work out what it is that a young person should have grasped by the time they leave formal schooling then we'll all agree on how we we assess that and how we work out a good way, a valuable way of working out whether teachers are doing the job to the best of uh, their ability and, and, and our aspiration for them. That's all about good leadership, of course, but it's also about knowing what, it, what the outcome should be. And the outcome can be understanding a, a, a body of knowledge that's been accumulated over the years I'm, I'm not against that but once that becomes the be all and end all then the individual gets lost and i've seen youngsters as you will have done who have been inspired in one area of learning something that they really were turned on with and it's helped them to actually understand why they needed to learn other things and to encourage them and support them to, to do well in those other areas as well. So the two go hand in hand, they're not like mutually exclusive.
0: I, I think that we've missed the fact that there is often this little light that goes on with you know, a child or young person, they finally come across something that really fires them up. And that then, as you say, becomes a platform against which they understand why the rest of maybe what they hadn't particularly liked learning becomes important, You know, particularly around maths and English if you were if you were articulating a snappy purpose of education David with all of your experience how would you how would you frame it what's what's the purpose of education for you
1: well it's to bring it's a to to turn out at the end of formal education a young person who firstly can cope with the the massive changes and extrinsicities of, of life. In other words, they they have the social, the life skills to be able to cope. And, and that obviously, on, immediately on, you, you understand that means they have the, the tools to continue learning and to adapt. Secondly, that they are uh, caring, compassionate, decent human beings who want themselves to grow a family, but also to make a contribution to the community around them, can make relationships of whatever style and form can actually um, develop their own talent to the best of their ability. They feel comfortable in their skin because they've been valued. They know that whatever it is they're good at, and everybody's got something that they're good at, might be a very practical thing, might be heavy lifting, might be intellectual, that they they will be able to use that uh, as a benchmark for building their confidence and self-esteem for the future. In other words, you and I would call it a holistic rounded human being who comes out with, of course, capabilities, but also with an understanding of themselves and the world around them. It's quite a challenge because the world is ever changing. We're in the midst constantly now of social and cultural change. I think one of the fundamentals is that people can be encouraged, not taught, but encouraged to think for themselves, to challenge what they hear and what, what they see and what they're told in a way that is constructive, not just a negative turn off Uh, and that includes things that they download from the internet it includes what they what they hear and and read and and see on social media and their particular peer group in in other words they are thinking human beings and if you can get that across you've made a good start
0: yeah and and they can can absolutely think for themselves in a sense of you know, what their views are rather than just being spoon-fed from a variety of different, different areas. And I suppose now, you know, this issue of um, opportunity aspiration, it's really at the top of the political agenda. I mean, it, I think it's fantastic that in a sense, and I think it's long overdue. So my personal view is that I think this needs, it is, I think the whole leveling up agenda, whatever you want to call it, transcends party politics. Um, I I think you've almost got these two great challenges of, you know, people and planet. You've got levelling up, you've got net zero. But I think what's interested me, David, is, I mean, you've been right really at the centre of the Labour Party, the Labour movement, as it's developed quite significantly over the years. You've seen the Labour Party almost you know, go on its own journey, take very different forms, particularly, I mean, recently again, of course, um, with Jeremy Corbyn, now Keir Starmer. For the Labour movement, I mean, where what does equality of opportunity mean? And the reason I ask that is that as a, I was a, obviously a Conservative MP, Conservative yeah. Cabinet Minister, I was always struck by how we ended up having debates almost about the semantics of equality of opportunity and, and, and leveling up. I kind of always understood in my bones what I meant. I think you probably understand in your bones what, what it means, and I think voters do. But for the Labour Party today, where do you think this fits into that, that Labour Party agenda of the 21st century?
1: I think the, the difference I have over what I've seen in, in recent local elections, and that was true of the Hartlepool by-election, is we've got ourselves into a tendency of electors saying, you've not done anything for us. Now, that may or may not be true, but actually the real issue is, have we enabled you to do something for yourself? Has has this been a a mutual process of us putting in place the mechanisms, whether it's in housing or health or the local environment or in the the education system and the people centred part of levelling up, have have we done the things that make it possible for you to partner with a central government or with a local government or with an elected mayor on doing it? This, I fought my party in the whole of the 55 years I've been a member and just, just over Um, about top-down paternalism about believing that people want something doing for them because then they get in the mode of expecting you to be able to wave a magic wand and none of us can but we can change the, the, the culture the whole environment in which people work physical and people centered so that they themselves can make a difference and you see this I, I was very taken some years ago with Balsall Heath in Birmingham, where the local community decided they weren't gonna put up with what they had to put up with. They were gonna do something about it themselves, turning to the city council and national government and saying, are you gonna help us do this? So this? This is our this is our uh, neighborhood, this is our place. And I think that the issue of people and place are the ones that will really transform that leveling up agenda. I wish I'd invented the term leveling up, very clever. Uh, Gordon Brown used to talk about rebalancing the economy. Nobody knew what the hell we meant by that. So, getting the, the terminology right sometimes helps to focus people's attention on what needs to be done.
0: Well, the term "leveling up," um, it is for me. There's there's an interesting story about it because I, I was I started using it back in 2015. I think is the first time I'm probably on record using it, and and. I as like you, very you passionate
1: to, about so- thumbs up for that.
0: <laughs> thank you. Well, like you, I'm very passionate about social mobility. So, my my little story on where leveling up came from for me was um, I remember talking to my mother about social mobility, and I could see that she was glazing over at the phrase. And when I asked her, I said, You do know what I mean by social mobility. And she she actually genuinely thought it was about helping people who were physically disabled and in wheelchairs to get around better. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was the moment where I, I knew I was gonna have to come up with something better. And at this time I'm in diffid and wanting to be more activist on social mobility, but obviously not in a domestic portfolio where I can do that. So I, 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 you know, I, I'm kind of talking with the Sutton Trust about supporting their work, but I politically felt we needed a better phrase. And I came up with leveling up because I wanted to articulate that equality of achieving equality of opportunity was about was not about you didn't achieve it by leveling down, you didn't achieve it by taking it away from people who had it. Actually, the big challenge was how did you extend it to people who didn't? Mm. And that it's this sense of everyone having opportunity that is how you live Britain. And and I do remember at the time, because we debated it, I didn't, I still didn't really think it was that good as a phrase, but my special advisor said to me it would never catch on. And I actually texted him last night when the Queen had said it, saying she's even said it now. So I, I think it just does kind of encapsulate what genuinely we're all trying to achieve, which is to extend opportunity to people um, who don't have
1: it. I used to talk to David Miliband um, back in 2005, 2004, 2005, about a trampoline rather than a safety net for the welfare state you you need a safety net obviously there are people who are gonna whatever you do are gonna fall through the net but uh, you you need that to 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 help people who are really up against it but actually it should be the welfare state should be transformed into a, a way in which you help people no longer to need to be dependent and you know, uh, uh, this is another argument I've been having over the years, because again, it's about uh, paternalism. You, you don't want to have a circumstance where you you ameliorate poverty. You want circumstances where you eliminate, as far as you humanly can, poverty. I, that, that, there was a, that great thing about the um, the Catholic priest in in South America, whose name escapes me. Uh, And to paraphrase it, it was, uh, when I gave to the poor, they called me a saint. And when I uh, argued that they should no longer be poor, they called me a communist. (laughs) (laughs) There's there's clearly something in actually ensuring that we don't paternalize people where they're at. You've got to eliminate inequality and disadvantage as best you can. can, This is building on what came before. It's standing on other people's shoulders. doing something about it but unless people feel engaged with that process I've seen it happen but very large amounts of capital pumped into housing estates uh, in my own city and 10 years later they're back to where they were because it wasn't done with the people who lived there
0: and it's about the the danger is that I, I think this is always a challenge for all governments is I think the problem is ministers like bricks and mortar projects where they can put a hard hat on and go and see it being built and then they can go and open it. And the issue for social mobility, I think are leveling up is a lot of that investment and change alongside the investment is about people and it's their attitudes and whether they feel they can aim higher and whether they're motivated to do that by having a clear sense of the pathways forward and it, it being worthwhile and, that, is, that I think is a lot harder to nail as a, as a policy area. And as you say, David, it does come from a grassroots ultimately, doesn't it?
1: It does indeed. And whilst people do want the physical environment improving, I, I get that completely. If you live in a tip, then you feel as if you've been neglected. Um, but but if, you, if that's all you're doing... Then, firstly, you can't cover the 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 costs, the day-to-day costs of what you've done. We had the New Deal for communities, great ideas, pumped a lot of money uh, into refurbishment of buildings, opening community centres. Where, where was the cash to actually run them? You know, and in the end, some of these then close and they become the dereliction of the future the, the, the same with what we're doing with city and town centers we we've got to work out what we're going to do with the buildings when we've when we've uh, refaced them and given them a facelift and repainted them so it's got to be about people and people can drive change if you talk to them and work things through with them they, they've got a good idea what they'd like to see in the neighborhood sometimes it will come off sometimes it won't but actually that's part of the participative democratic Process. We we want active. I mean, I've always talked about this. Again, it's a bit like your 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 talk with your mum. I I, I talked about active citizenship. People say, "What do you mean by that?" I mean, point at some point, not every day, every week, not attending meetings even on Zoom, but actually at some point, connecting with the the decisions that are being made about you. And uh, you know, the the slogan that we had a few years ago with the health service. uh, no no decision without you or whatever it was it struck a chord with me that we actually ought to be thinking all the time how are we giving people the opportunity if they don't take it then there's not a lot we can do about it but give people the opportunity to be part of the solution.
0: Totally right totally right now we're coming to the end of the um, the podcast I've I've got um, I've got two or three quick fire questions for okay. you. Um, so answer them as best you can. We'll see how we go. Right, first one is, proudest career moment?
1: Oh, undoubtedly becoming a member of the cabinet in 97. I I don't think anything else equals it, even becoming leader of Sheffield.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant answer. Next, this is a challenging question. Worst piece of advice you've ever received?
1: I think the worst piece of advice that I've ever received was uh when i was leader of sheffield and we'd had a referendum i mean this is a trivial thing but it illustrates a problem we'd had a referendum god help us amongst parents as to whether they wanted to continue having school uniforms this is just before i became leader of the council and the vote was that they wanted to keep school uniforms and my group said no we think it's in unequal people can't afford it this is nonsense by the way because it actually was the reverse of this it was better to have a defined uniform and help youngsters be able to buy it than it was flashing about with um, things they couldn't afford and we we ignored the the result and we paid a price for it not electorally but in terms of trust and that really struck me. And I go, what, what do we learn? We learned from 2016 that if you don't actually hear what people say, even if you don't like it, they get their own back.
0: Yeah, they do. In a democracy, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. And then last question, um, if you were giving yourself some advice, you know, to younger David Blunkett all those years ago, what best advice do you think you'd give to yourself?
1: I think i would continued saying don't take no for an answer, which is what I often say to young people. I'm to be tenacious and pig-headed because of the barriers that I was facing, both economic and social and and physical, obviously. Uh, I would say try and be a bit more humble. Try and look at things from other people's point of view because you move from being tenacious to being arrogant very quickly, And I didn't really fully learn the lesson until I'd been in cabinet because I, whilst I was, I think I was pretty good at building a ministerial team and advisors. I was hopeless at relating to my fellow cabinet ministers. I always wanted my way I couldn't understand why they couldn't agree with me and I didn't socialize very well. So I've learned it a bit too late. Tony Blair said to me, the problem with politics is you just learn how to do it when nobody wants you to do it anymore.
0: <laughs> what's the, what's the, probably the best piece of advice you've had from someone else, would you say, just out of interest?
1: Um, be prepared to take criticism and not take it personally, to be able to listen to objective, uh, critique of what you've done and said and that was from the then leader of Sheffield city council a guy who worked in the steelworks came in in the middle of the afternoon left the town hall at 10 o'clock at night run ironmonger uh, when i first joined and he once cut me right down to size and he came around and put his arm around me afterwards we'll be able to do that again very soon and he said to me don't take it personally i wanted you to learn a lesson if you're going to win your argument, you've got to put a better argument together and not assume that everyone will automatically agree with you.
0: Brilliant. Well, it was advice that stood you in very good stead. Lord um, David Bunkett, it's been fantastic having you on this podcast. We've been doing the levelling up goals. The final goal, 14, is around reaping the rewards of diversity and really making sure we reach into all places but all groups of people and I think your journey is absolutely inspiring for lots and lots of people and you you really embody why that 14th goal matters so much so it's been an absolute pleasure having you on David I love talking leveling up and hope that we can not only do some more talking, but perhaps, you know, work on this collectively together over the coming months.
1: Thank you for doing this and for what you're doing more broadly. Happy to work um, because when you have some fundamental agreements, you should build on them.
0: Totally agree. Thanks, David. Thank you.
1: Thank you.